Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and, the, and his wife heard the Lord God walking around about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman who gave it to me, who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. The word of God. Thank you. Let's, um, let's pray before we jump in. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the imagery that it provides. We thank you for the instruction that it provides. Uh, we thank you for the community that you have, you have built here, for those that are new, those that have been here for a long time. We, we thank you for the partnership over the years. And um, we thank you for Alex and Karen. And we pray that you open your word to us this morning. Help us to see what you have for us. Um, see where you want us to go, how we can serve you and partner together in the gospel work. We ask this in your name. Amen. So we're in um, Genesis chapter 3, which takes place, as we heard, in, in the Garden of Eden. This is where the scene, the scene is set. Now, there's no physical garden anymore. I mean, you could, you could look at the, the rivers, you know, the description of the rivers and stuff in the chapter before, in chapter two. You can try and figure out where in the world it kind of makes sense it to be somewhere in the Middle East. But it's really, it's a fruit, fruitless task. It doesn't really make sense because our need isn't to find the Garden of Eden. Our need is actually to learn what happened in the Garden of Eden so we can find the God who is in the garden because that's, that's the point. And as we consider this idea of partnership in the gospel, the partnership with God, partnership with each other, this partnership idea that we're leaning into, into retreat and beyond, as we prepare for the retreat even next weekend, I want us to, to look at what happened with Adam and Eve specifically and this, this serpent character and how that initial partnership was broken. Now, what it should have been or could have been or what was for a moment, this beautiful, perfect partnership between God and his people, God and his creation was broken, how, that, how God related to that and how we therefore relate to it too. And on the face of it, that partial story there that we, we heard, it seems like a pretty simple, straightforward story. But we talked about this in our community group on Tuesday, so if you ever want to kind of a, a, a a preview of Sunday, you could come to our community group where um, we share the same thoughts and then I take all those good ideas and make them mine and then tell you. 
Um, but we discovered there's a lot to pull from these verses. There's actually a lot of questions, and we can't, I can't cover it all this morning. So I want us to focus on um, what leads to sin, what leads to that broken partnership, and then how God works to restore it in preparation for some of the work we're going to do next weekend. So in that story, we hear about how sin first came into the human-God partnership, how it kind of first breaks through. And we, we see from Scripture and from our own experience, we can see it's the, the greatest tragedy of human history. And it actually doesn't take long to realize, as you read that narrative, it's actually nothing new. Satan doesn't use any new tricks. The same pattern just keeps repeating over and over. He works the same thing, the same angle, again and again with a new generation. In the New Testament, in James 1, it talks about the pattern that we see reflected in this story. The temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. And in the garden, it's the same thing. Satan's strategy starts with doubt. He comes to Eve and he says, did God really say? Now, as an aside, and this message has a lot of asides, so get ready. One of the questions that came up in, in our community group on Tuesday was, who is this character? Who is this, this, this person that came to Eve? The translation we heard describes as a shrewd one or crafty one. And if you picture this narrative, you think of the garden and, and the way this is described, and you think of a serpent, and you think of what I think of a serpent, I think of this serpent kind of after the story. Because after this whole thing happens, God curses this serpent and it, it crawls on its belly. But, but Satan, before all this happens, is a fallen angelic being. So maybe it's a little bit different. That word in the Hebrew language, it means serpent, but it also has this variation which kind of means like something that shines, a, sh a shining one. So there's this actual kind of indication, this implication, this picture that's a little bit different that maybe actually that the being that was talking to Eve was actually one of the most beautiful beings, which is only helpful as you think about like this idea of this story and then there's this tree and God, they were talking to God face to face, one on one. He says, don't eat from this tree. And then they do. And you think, well, how in the world did this happen? How did you decide, like, I'm just, I'm not going to, I'm going to do this. This looks good. When we have this picture of a snake talking and it's coiled around a branch of a tree and you think, what, this doesn't make any sense. But if you think, well, maybe it didn't look quite like that then maybe Eve didn't quite realize what she was up against because it came to look more snake-like maybe later. And that's helpful to think about as you think about our temptations, about how we step into sin. And in hindsight, after the fact, we wonder how on earth, how on earth did we end up making that choice that seems so obvious now at the time was much more shiny and far more enticing than maybe it looks now. Anyway, whatever form Satan was in in this moment, somehow he came appearing as part of God's creation and he's planted the seed of doubt in the woman's mind. Did God really say? And that's when the first mistake happens because she begins to battle with him, she begins to talk to him. And this is the mistake because we're no match for Satan. There's no one in here that's a match for Satan. Only Jesus is. Because of his victory, we can have victory over Satan but we shouldn't try and battle him on our own. He's been at it for far too long. For thousands of years, he knows all the tricks, he knows our thoughts. You can't outwit him on your own. We have to look at God's word. 
We have to ask Christ for help because that's where the power is. That's where the ability is. First John, the spirit who lives in you, the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. It's not to sound defeated that it's impossible to win. Quite the opposite. There's this great encouragement there. We can't win on our own, but we have someone who can win for us. But Satan comes in, he plants his doubt. And say on Tuesday, another question came up. Well, why? Why did God let this happen? Everything was perfect in the garden. It was beautiful. Why did God put this tree in the middle? Why did he do that? Why did he allow Satan in? There's got to be a better way than this. And really, honestly, these are the kind of questions you should ask. As you read scripture, as you study the Bible, as you look at texts, as you discuss, that's the questions you should come up. You should ask those things. And the answer here of why mostly waits for us in heaven. But as you read the Bible, especially here in Genesis, in Isaiah, in Revelation, kind of all the way through, there's this narrative of a great spiritual battle. We don't know all the details of this battle. We don't need to. But as part of this great spiritual battle, mankind and earth came into this decision where, where Satan was allowed to be in the garden. Now, Satan and God are not equal. It's worth noting that. Satan's always been under God. He's a fallen angel. But for our intents and purposes today, the key is not what Satan said, but really what mankind did. Because Adam and Eve made a choice to partake of the fruit of the tree, to eat it when they weren't supposed to. But the simplest answer to this why question that nags, and it's an incomplete answer, I know, but it's because of the kind of relationship, the kind of partnership God wants to have with us. It's a different relationship than he wants to have with any other part of creation. He created us in his image, which means we have a choice, and the tree provides this choice. The choice wasn't between really good and evil. We call it the tree of knowledge of good and evil because the temptation was to become like God. The temptation was to say, as a human, as a person, I'm limited, but maybe there's a way, as God's creation, I can overcome those limits and I can become even like the God who made me. So the question is, am I gonna be satisfied to be God's creation and worship him, depend on him, or do I want to do it on my own? Which is the basis of all sin. They didn't really want so much the knowledge of evil. They wanted to be like God. And when we make the choice, however similar, however slightly different, to not be a creation, to be try and be the creator, we're engaging in the same kind of sin that made Satan fall from heaven. The same kind of sin that made Adam and Eve leave the garden. So it was there to provide this choice, and we have the same choice. We, choose, we can choose Jesus Christ. We can choose God's love. So back to our passage. Satan begins with this question, did God really say? Did God really say? And he's doing what he does all the time. He's altering the image of God in Eve's mind. He's trying to make God appear to be something that he isn't, someone who's mean, reluctant to give good things, keeping good things from them. And Eve's response is really interesting. She says, of course, we may eat from fruit trees in the garden. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. 
Eve changes two things. She lefts out a word, she leaves out a word, and she includes some words. And it's really important because God had said, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden. And Eve said, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. Sounds very similar, but she left out the very best word that they could freely do it. And God said, accept the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve adds this, or even touch it. So she took away from God's word, the word freely, and she adds to God's word. And Satan tempts us to do this all the time, to take away the important things in God's word, things that maybe seem small, that maybe seem insignificant, but actually hold great value. Because if you take them away, it starts to make it seem like rules rather than a relationship. He adds things into God's word. He does it in Luke, where Jesus and Satan are talking, and Satan twists God's word. So, the seed of doubt has been planted. God doesn't want what's best for you. Rules are restricted. They're unfair. You're missing out. You deserve more. And that doubt leads to a deception. Because that doubt is enough to, give, to get Eve on the back foot here. There's doubting now, there's questions. And then Satan comes in and tells a, a lie, a blatant lie. You won't die, he says. That is not true. They would die. They would die spiritually. They would eventually die physically. They'd actually watch one of their sons be murdered, all as a result of that sin that came into their lives. And Satan says, God knows your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. You'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. And I think the hardest lie to navigate from the enemy, the hardest one, is one that has a little bit of truth mixed in. An outright untruth is actually easier to see, it's easier to confront, it's easier to, to flee from. A partial lie is more difficult. The hardest one yet is one that has the truth in it, but a truth you don't yet understand. He says, God knows you're going to know good and evil. And Eve thinks, that sounds great. I like that. She doesn't know how terrible it will be. She doesn't know what a curse it's going to be to know good and evil. So Satan mixes truth and lies together, showing his character, this deceptive, shrewd character. So he plants doubt, enough doubt that creates questions. He deceives her, feeds that doubt, and offers a solution to it. And that doubt, that deception, leads to the beginnings of a desire. Because Eve sees three things, a fruit of the tree that's good for food, that's pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom. And if you think about every advertising campaign, really, in, in history, or in fact, think, think of a, a car a commercial. Um, it's sleek. It drives on mountain roads very well. It's, it's got beautiful curves outside. It's leather interior. It's pleasing to the eye. It's comfortable. There's status there. There's a very well-groomed gentleman who's driving it with ease and enjoyment. It's something that you want. Yeah, it's a car, but that bit's barely mentioned. It's something about the status all the things you can't see, all the things that are implied, the idea that this, this gentleman that's driving this beautiful car probably has a beautiful family at home, probably goes home to a, a home-cooked meal every, every night, has friends coming over, laughing, drinking cocktails around the pool. Because good advertising doesn't sell you a product, it sells a dream. They sell you on four things, pleasure, possessions, position, or power. 
same things at the very beginning. She saw the tree was beautiful. It looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom it would give her, the pleasure, the possession, and the power. And so often it does. That desire very quickly leads to a decision. So as that doubt begins and the deception is laid, a desire grows, which leads to a decision that needs to be made. And I'm sure you know what it's like to get to the point of a temptation when you've allowed the desire to get to, to grow so much into such big size that, that you just can't say no anymore. You've already at that point. And as an aside, I actually think this is where many dysfunctional church strategies have been born in years past, where people, churches, us, focus on the action step, this decision step, and we create rules and boundaries that might help some, they might hinder others, but they begins this attitude of, of hierarchy. You know, I'm better because I can act this way. I'm better because I make this decision. It's very much the attitude of a Pharisee. And really, it's a heart conversation, one that's rooted more in the doubt and deception and desire stages, not the decision. We focus more on the doing rather than the being. And it's a much harder place to follow Jesus at a decision point if we don't first examine and work on where we doubt, where we're deceived, and what we desire as we seek his heart. But Eve was at that point. She allowed the desire to grow so strongly she felt she couldn't say no. And the scripture tells us she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. Pause. This is important. He was with her. Standing there the whole time, just listening to this exchange casually, half in and half out, ready to commit, but not ready to stand by something. It could go either way at any moment. The New Testament tells us that temptation came first through Eve, but that Adam is the one responsible for the sin that comes upon the whole human race. It actually doesn't just blame Eve. Adam actually takes the greatest blame because he was right there because he could have stepped in at any moment and said, wait, hang on, this doesn't sound right. Let's take stock, let's review. He doesn't do that. He stands there, he listens, he allows it to happen. Talk about a failed partnership. Can you relate to that? Have you ever allowed that to happen? We should have stepped in, could have said something. Happens all the time on the subway, out in public, in the workplace, in churches, a hesitation to, to speak up, a temptation to stay in silence, to see, well, let's see how things pan out before I decide which way I'm gonna go. And maybe there's nothing outright to gain in the silence, but we for sure weigh what we might lose by speaking up. And it comes back to pleasure, possessions, power, and position. So Adam ate it also, not because Eve told him to, that's what he said. He wanted to. He had the same desire, pleasure, possessions, position, power. And Adam and Eve represent us all. They're showing just what I and you and anyone else would do in the same situations. We don't blame them. We see the same pattern in our own lives. It's nothing new. But that doubt, if we allow it to be there and we become deceived, builds into a desire that causes a decision if we leave it unchecked, which ultimately will lead to death. Now, Satan says, you won't die. So they take a, take a bite. 
And I imagine Adam and Eve kind of cautiously taking a bite of this fruit, half expecting to fall over dead immediately, like, like a Snow White kind of story. But they don't just fall over dead. And there was probably this split second of relief that actually it was fine after all. And, and the devil was right. But spiritually they died. And immediately a separation comes between them and God. And they're going to face physical death like they hadn't before. So immediately death did come, if maybe not in the way they half expected and feared. And in fact, more than that even happened, more than they realized in Romans 5, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Not only would they die, Adam and Eve, but their children and their children's children and their children's children's children and, and so forth and so forth would die. Like cheating on a diet. Was it worth it, Adam? Was it worth it, Eve? Was it? So I think there's a key piece of work to be done in the doubt and deception stage or phase. The way I respond to doubt and deception determines whether or not I will birth a desire that can provoke a decision that leads to death. That's the process. So to some degree, the question is not so much how do you handle temptation as it is maybe when you handle temptation. And I think it's not at the point of desire. It's the point of doubt and deception. How do you handle the doubts that are thrown into your mind? How do you handle deceptions that come into your lives? And how you do that will determine where the desire comes in and you get to a point where you can no longer say no. For example, don't allow the deception of you're not good enough. You are unworthy to do the job you have, to fulfill the dreams you hope for, to be loved by someone else. Don't allow that to take root. Because if you do, it turns easily to a desire for power or authority or possession. I want something. I want to own something or I want a position that I deserve. And you can see very easily how this can lead into an action step of sin. And I'm, I'm preaching to myself here. I'm sick and tired of desire coming into my life as a believer that you feel you can't say no to. Especially when it's a desire of just wanting to feel worthy and appreciated and encouraged. Because the lies tell you the opposite. So start at the point of doubt. A deception. Don't go to the places where you know you'll be tempted to spiral. Don't allow those thoughts to spin out of control in your mind. Talk to somebody about it. Because that's where the battleground is, at the point of doubt and deception. That's where the partnership comes in. That's where we can lean in on each other. Christian accountability, accountability partners, in my mind, has always been this idea of having someone that you trust enough who, who'll be able to tell you off and you won't lose a friend, like that kind of idea. But I was thinking about this message. I think, what if, instead of like a, a, a traditional accountability partner that doesn't really go deeper than simply confessing actions, or maybe one that has a fairly rigid um, structure of boundaries that you're going to discuss, you know, these, these points. What if you had people in your life who help unravel the lies, who help navigate the deceptions with you, who can work on that step before the boundary or the action steps are discussed before the actions there, where we're honest and vulnerable about our insecurities and doubts, and we can build each other up before we get to that point. The Bible is the sword of the Spirit, so that's where the victory is. It has the power to handle these doubts, to, to handle these deceptions. And when you're involved in that, that place of temptation, of doubt, of deception, 
Do you ever feel like you want to just leave the Bible on the shelf, leave it on the nightstand, leave it closed? Because that's deception. If any of you, and I know many of you have, have ever called Marcy with a struggle, it's our care, care pastor, you'll know at some point in that conversation, early on in that conversation, she's going to say something like, well, have you read the Bible? What does it say in the Word? Let's read it together. Why don't you go and read it and then come back? We have the tools. Because when you pick up the Bible, and when you start to read it, you discover that, you know what? What I really want to do is what God wants me to do anyway. And you fall more and more in love with Him. And the doubts and the deceptions begin to fade. What we tend to do is lean into shame and fear and blame, much like Adam and Eve. They sewed fig leaves and shame. They wanted to cover up. They hid in the bushes. It was fear. They wanted to hide out from God. And they pointed fingers like we do. We shift the blame, or at least we try to lessen it a little bit. But notice how God's relationship with Adam and Eve changes immediately. God comes into the garden in, in midst of this shame and blame and fear that's going on. He calls out to the man. He says, cool evening breezes were blowing. The man and wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord among the trees. And the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? Now, our faith is built on a relationship, not on a religion. So instead of beginning with the question, how can I find God? We actually begin with God coming and looking for us. That's our faith. That God came to the earth to look for us. He starts in the Garden of Eden. Even after everything they've done, sin and death have been allowed to enter the world because of their desire to be like God. They've disowned him as creator. They've disowned him as Lord. Even then, he seeks them out. In fear, they hide. And he still seeks them out. Where are you? And their relationship immediately begins to change. They came out from behind the bushes. God's next question, well, who told you you were naked? And the honest answer is, we just knew. We knew it in our hearts because we've changed because of what sin has done to us. We now know. And then God asks them a third question. What have you done? He gives them this opportunity to tell them what they've done. The conversation between Adam and Eve and, and God is not a hearing. It's way more healing. He doesn't drag them out of the bushes by their ankles, calling all the animals of creation around, saying, hey, come look at this. Come and, come and look at how they've blown it. Let's really embarrass the situation. Let's shame them into a different life. Um, when I lived in Newcastle upon Tyne in, in England, north, northeast of England, there's a metro uh, service, like a, I was going to say an underground. It's not underground. It's mostly on the ground. So there's a, a light rail service called the metro. And um, much like here, you, you pay for it. Um, but unlike, I don't know what it's like now, but when I was there, whatever it was, a million years ago, there were no turnstiles or anything. You would just pay your money, and depending on which zone you're going to, you get a tiny little yellow ticket and then carry on your way. And the only kind of checkpoint was if there was a, a ticket person on the train and they would you know, check tickets and whatever. If you were found without a ticket, I think there was a fine, but what they would do is they would list your name and the city you live in, the town you live in, on the wall of the metro stations. And it was a name and shame. And it was, are you a metro loser? 
and they were, it was quite big, and there was a whole like you know thing of them, and that's not what's happening here. God doesn't use that. He gives them an opportunity to be honest with them about their sin. He gives us the same opportunity. For all their struggles, for all their shame and blame and hiding, at the end of everything, they finally say, I ate the, the, the fruit from the tree. They don't, they don't say it perfectly. They say, oh, well, it was his fault, it was her fault. But they do say they ate it. They finally get to the point of saying, they did it. And when they do, God stops asking questions and a new partnership begins. When we acknowledge where we fail, when we're honest about where we struggle, when we lean on the Father's strength and the grace, he pours that grace into our lives. And it's then, then the kingdom work can begin. So we're about to step into retreat next weekend. We're going to look more about the partnership that God had with a, a few key folk in Genesis. We're going to explore the parallels for us. We're going to lean on the promises of Abraham how Jacob wrestled with the control in that partnership, how Joseph dreamed of future plans and followed a great purpose, and then how it's all knitted together as a church body to do powerful work. But all of that starts in the garden with God calling you now. Where are you? What have you done? He's not trying to hurt. He's looking to heal. So stop hiding in fear, stop covering in shame, stop blaming others, and respond to God. Where are you? What have you done? Begin that healing today. Allow that partnership to be renewed because we have work to do. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you seek us out. We thank you that despite our choices, the way we allow our desires to take control of us, the way we forget who you are so easily, despite all that, you seek us out. You ask what we've done, you're not afraid of the answer. Your love, your mercy, your grace is overwhelming. We ask that you give us the strength to look inward. We ask that you show us where in us we need to change to become more honoring to you, to live a life that glorifies you. Show us those things so we can partner with you. Amen.